you very much. It's a real pleasure to be with you uh, here, but it's a, a very special pleasure to get to visit with uh, my old friend, uh, Jim Culberson. Uh, those of you who know Jim, and I expect that's right many of you around here, um, know what him as an outstanding local banker uh, with a historic local bank. Uh, but also you may know he was the uh, chairman of the American Bankers Association. This is the foremost trade organization representing bankers in the banking industry in our, in our country. Jim also served on our board of directors at the Richmond Fed. He started off at the Charlotte branch. We had him on the board there, and he was so outstanding. We, we uh, signed him up uh, for another tour of duty at the I Richmond. couldn't find anybody. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't find anyone better, and, and uh, he, he uh, certainly did just excellent service for us. Uh, so we're very, very much appreciate his service to our country, because our board of directors, they aren't paid much. It's not like being on the board of J.P. Morgan Chase or something, and um, it, it's really a service to the country that they help us stay connected in ways like this to the different regional economies that make up our country, and that's the uh, beauty of the system that Jim talked about the, with 12 regional reserve banks. Uh, when the Fed was founded, they could have set up one giant bank in New York with a lot of branches, um, but um, people in, in Virginia, North Carolina, elsewhere resisted that, and politically the compromise that emerged was something like this, and the idea was to keep us knit together um, with uh, communities around the, the country, and people like Jim and our directors are a big part of that, so we're very, very grateful uh, for that, Jim. <clears throat> so thank you for inviting me down to Asheboro. I'm going to be talking today about uh, the outlook for the economy. I'm going to be doing it with my reading glasses on so I don't make any mistakes. Um, and uh, the first mistake I want to make sure I don't uh, make is to fail to tell you that um, the views I'm going to express are going to be my own and not necessarily those of other members of the Federal Reserve System. <laughs> so let me start with a little background. For several years now, Ever since the, we call it the Great Recession, the big recession we just went through in 2008 and 2009, most forecasts of economic activity have followed the same sort of common script. They essentially say that while growth has been modest recently, the economy is likely to pick up speed in the next couple of quarters when the headwinds that have been temporarily restraining growth start to fade away. Now, my own forecasts have followed this script, at least up until earlier this year. And uh, that's been true of a lot of other forecasters. And there's a, a poll of, of forecasters that's conducted on a monthly basis called the Blue Chip Survey. And uh, they've, they've shown the same sort of thing. Economists uh, continually forecasting that growth is going to pick up in the near term. But despite these optimistic forecasts, the reality has been somewhat more modest. Real gross domestic product, we call it real GDP, gross domestic product is what it stands for. It's our, it's our broadest measure of overall economic activity and spending in the country. Real GDP grew by 2.0% in 2011, 2.0% in 2012, and the data are lining up in a way that makes it look like it's going to be really close to 2.0% for 2013. And yet, if you look at the latest compilation, this blue chip survey, compilation of different forecasters' outlooks, uh, what you see is that uh, forecasters are on average forecasting something close to 3% uh, by way of real GDP growth next year. Some 3.5, 4, some 2.5, but most forecasters are forecasting a pickup next year. 
As you may have guessed, I have a somewhat different view. Uh, a growing number of economists have taken on board the disappointing forecasting record that we've seen over the last few years, and they've come to believe that growth is more likely than not to remain somewhat low over the next few years. In fact, some have become very pessimistic about growth in the United States and have gone so far as to use the word stagnation. Now, I'm not totally in that camp. I, uh, I don't think that's warranted. I wouldn't go that far. Uh, certainly, it's true that we're living in a, a world, a period where improvements in standards of living uh, are harder to come by. Um, we heard about that in the eloquent invocation by Dr. Shackelford. Um, but new economic opportunities do keep emerging, and innovations are being implemented. Um, it's just that it's at a more temperate pace than in the recent past. Uh, and I'll be more explicit about this as I go on. So um, the, the, my near-term forecast is growth close to 2% rather than uh, 2.8 or 3% uh, that you see sort of the average of other economists. Um, and don't count me among the stagnations because I think in the long run our prospects are very strong. And again, reasons that uh, were very, very eloquently recounted by Dr. Shackelford. So a little more background. Before the Great Recession, we came to enjoy a period known as the Great Moderation. This is a name economists have given to this period. From 1983 to 2007, real GDP, that measure of overall economic activity, grew at an average annual rate of 3.3%. Over that 24-year period, we only experienced two recessions. They were very mild, very shallow, and together, adding them all up, they only lasted five quarters. This was a noticeably better performance than what happened before that. You know, you had the Great Depression in the 30s. The 50s were a volatile time. There was a good run in the 60s, but then the 70s were exceptionally, and early 80s, exceptionally volatile time. Um, this was a noticeably better performance, and that's why people call it the Great Moderation. Real personal income uh, kept pace with GDP. It grew at an average real income, adjusted for inflation, grew at an average of 3.3% over that period. And consumer spending grew even more rapidly, 3.6% at an annual rate. Part of the reason consumer spending grew more rapidly than income was the rise in household wealth. So stock prices, bond prices, housing prices, all of those increased significantly during this, this great moderation period. Another reason for the divergence between consumer spending and income uh, was the increase in availability of credit uh, for most consumers. Um, it, it, it was a, a really stunning set of developments over the course of the 80s, 90s, and, and the early aughts. Um, for example, I'll just cite one statistic that illustrates this. The ratio of credit card debt to personal income rose from 2.4% in 83 to 5.5% in 2007. Uh, now, I, you know, I know debt, of course, is a double-edged sword. Um, it's, it, 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 it can be a burden to consumers to get into debt. But you have to, from an economist's point of view, you look at debt as an opportunity, an opportunity to rearrange the timing of your spending, uh, rearrange uh, an opportunity um, to, to go without having, having very large uh, rainy day funds do, do, uh, to do with, that, with a little bit less by way of rainy day funds. So it's, 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 it's something that opens opportunities up for consumers. Uh, from economist's point of view. 
During the Great Recession, uh, real GDP uh, fell by 4.3% over a six-quarter interval. So the recession, six quarters, year and a half, GDP fell 4.3%. But other indicators document what a hardship this was. I think 4.3% as a number just doesn't do it justice. Payroll employment fell by 8.7 million jobs in the recession and the immediate aftermath there. The unemployment rate, which was below 5% in 2007, just before the recession began, uh, over more than doubled, rose to 10% in October of 2009. Real personal income, inflation-adjusted personal income, fell by 3.1% from December 07 to July 2009. The value of consumer holdings of uh, stocks and mutual fund shares fell by $5 trillion, and the value of household equity in real estate, uh, what you will own in a house above and beyond what the debt you will want it, fell by $3.9 trillion. The scale and scope of these losses, losses in income and wealth uh, for American consumers was much greater than anything seen during the Great Moderation. You have to go back to the early 80s and the mid-70s to see anything like uh, the scale and scope of these losses. Now, given that experience, that what a lot of house, the experience that a lot of households have been through, lenders are bound to reevaluate the riskiness associated with extending credit to a typical household. And indeed, on the household side, just looking at consumers, consumers themselves appear to be reevaluating the riskiness associated with indebtedness. Uh, no doubt that reflects some sense that a lot of people have that their income and asset returns could be substantially riskier than was true during that great moderation period. Um, people have a sense that the job market's a tougher place. If they lose their job, they're more likely. Uh, to have trouble finding one, and they might be even more likely to lose a job now than they were 10, 20 years ago. Under these conditions, it's no surprise that credit's no longer available on the same terms. It's also no surprise consumers are less interested in credit than they used to be. They've been paying off debt. They've been building up savings um, in order to restore some sense of balance in their household's finances. And these developments are very – this development is really – important uh, to understanding the slow growth picture that I painted for you here. I, I think these are the developments that have led consumers to be much more cautious in their spending behavior. Over the last three years, real consumer spending has increased at an annual rate of just 2.2%. And remember, it grew at 3.6% during the Great Moderation. And given the traumatic events consumers have been through, it strikes me as uh, like, quite likely that this caution is not temporary, that this is going to be a persistent thing over the next several years. Businesses also appear to be quite cautious about their investment in hiring plans. There's a widely followed index of small business optimism uh, that averaged just over 100 during uh, the Great Moderation period. It fell sharply during the recession, and since then it's only partially recovered, and it was 91.6 the last uh, monthly reading we got. Interestingly, when asked them about the single most important problem they face uh, in the latest survey, these small business owners said government regulations and red tape. These resorts, the results accord with a lot of reports I've uh, heard 
from business contacts uh, for several years now as I go around our district and I have a, Jim mentioned our research department and there's a division of our research department that uh, focuses uh, solely on understanding regional economic conditions in our district. By, by the way, my district goes from Maryland, District of Columbia, Virginia, North and South Carolina, and almost all of West Virginia, essentially everything but Wheeling. And uh, we do surveys, we convene panels, we do roundtables, we, we get out um, in uh, our district um, and, and, and gather information of an anecdotal nature. It's more rapid uh, to, to acquire that, and it's, it's also more meaningful. It, it gives you the reasons why people see what they're seeing rather than just the numbers of dollars they've spent. And in, in those, um, in those con from those contacts for several years now, well, we've been hearing about uh, reports that, that regulation, either regulations that have been implemented or that are going to be implemented or might be implemented or being litigated, have been um, a major concern. Um, it looks as if there was a substantial increase in the pace of regulatory change around 2008-2009, and that seems to be limiting investment in hiring. Moreover, it appears that there's greater uncertainty about exactly what those regulations are going to look like and about the likely impact of regulations coming down the pike. And that uncertainty provides firms with an additional reason not uh, to, to expand, to postpone their expansion plans. So if you add to that the uncertainty around the fiscal drama uh, going on in Washington, um, you get a very murky picture. Even with last January's tax increases and with the sequester that's been holding down uh, federal spending, the federal deficit was about 4% of GDP in the 2013 fiscal year. Uh, that just ended. That level is too high to be able to sustain over the long run. It just can't happen. We're not going to be able to do that over the long run. Moreover, if you take into account the rising costs of medical care uh, med uh, that factor into the medical entitlement programs, Medicare and Medicaid, and the rising costs of Social Security that are likely to occur as the baby boom generation continues to age, it's pretty clear that the current federal budget plans, the laws that are on the books, are simply unsustainable over the next couple of decades. So at some point, we will get, not just that we can expect, we will get some combination of a lower trajectory for federal spending uh, than is given by current law or some higher taxes, some combination of those two. Uh, in the meantime, businesses and households are unsure about how their tax liabilities are going to evolve, and firms that do business with the government are unsure about whether you know, whether a shoe's going to drop and, 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 and what their prospects are likely to be in the next couple of years. Now, it's hard to quantify, but I think this fiscal drama, I think the uncertainty surrounding everything that's going on in Washington, my sense is that it's weighing on business hiring and investment right now as well. So far, I've mentioned consumer spending and business investment. Together, they, they constitute about four-fifths of uh, the economy, four-fifths of that GDP number I told you about. Residential area is one area where we have seen strong growth on a, on a national basis and sort of averaged over the whole country. Last year, real residential investment increased by more than 15%, and so far this year it's increased by almost 14% at an annual rate. Despite that, though, um, housing market indicators such as housing starts, new home sales, remain well below the levels that we saw uh, during the great moderation and that, that, 
that we considered normal before this last recession. So it looks as if there's a lot more room for residential investment to continue to grow. But residential investment is only 3% of our economy right now. So even if we had a, another housing boom, uh, it wouldn't add much to overall top-line growth. It would only have a marginal effect on the outlook. Government spending's been weak recently. My guess is it's going to make little contribution to GDP growth. The only other category of spending I've left out is net exports. And without getting into it, there's, for various reasons, it looks unlikely to make a significant contribution to growth in the coming year. And if you add up what looks sensible, to me at least, in all those categories, you get a forecast of GDP growth for next year of just a little above 2%. Not much different from what we've seen for the last three years. <clears throat> now, that's my forecast for next year. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I've rec recounted a number of impediments. I've talked about a number of things that are making it hard for us to grow any more rapidly than that. And it might be a gloomy sort of picture, but I think it's important to put this in longer-run perspective uh, where we are. Uh, to do that, it's useful to do a little economic arithmetic, and I'll try and make, promise to make this as painless as possible. Um, now, as I said before, real GDP is the, a broad measure of the total amount of output of goods and services, what we create each year in the economy. And you can break down real GDP growth into the sum of two components. One is the growth in the number of workers, and the other is the growth in the amount of output per worker. That output per worker is also known as productivity. So you can break it down into growth in workers, growth in worker productivity. And real GDP growth is just the sum of productivity growth plus the growth in the number of workers. And it turns out both of these have slowed uh, since the great moderation. So this is like a farmer looking at his harvest and decomposing the growth of his harvest into the growth in acres planted and growth in harvest per acre or yield. So it's the same, so it's an exactly analogous sort of calculation. So let's start first with productivity. From 83 to 2000, uh, productivity grew at 1.8%. But towards the end of the moderation, productivity growth slowed. And over the last three years, the pace has been lowered, just a very modest nine-tenths of a percent. Now, there are two ways of looking at this, half full, half empty. Uh, the first is pessimistic, that productivity growth is half of what it is during the great moderation. And this is what the stagnationists are pointing to, that productivity growth is so low, uh, we're running out of, 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 of good inventions. And the second perspective is, despite all this gloomy talk, despite kind of the dour mood on um, American consumers and businesses, despite all our, our, our challenges, productivity ha growth has been positive. We are seeing productivity growth. And this is important because productivity growth is what drives real income growth. Productivity growth is tied closely to real incomes and real wages for people. They ultimately, that's what, that's what pins down the real value of, of workers' earnings. And productivity growth continuing means we're going to continue to get real income gains on average over our workforce. <clears throat> now, forecasting productivity is exceptionally difficult to do. Uh, it's hard to see inventions coming. If you could... You'd invent them now, and they'd be invented, and we'd know all about them already. So it's kind of mysterious where productivity just seems to happen every year. But it's happened quite reliably for the last two or three centuries. So it does look like it is predictable 
just by looking at the recent past. But forecasting whether a trend rate of growth in productivity is going to pick up or fall, that's exceptionally difficult. But having said that, it's hard, so it's hard to see why productivity growth would surge, would get back to 1.8 anytime soon. And the, the forecasters I talked about at the beginning who are thinking growth is going to get back towards 3, they're they're baking in some productivity growth, and it's hard to see where that surge is going to come from. So we've got technological innovations that are going on, but there's no big giant breakthrough uh, that we're working on. We're working on the kind of the things we know about. You know, we're using the Internet. We're using communication better. We're using computers better. Um, education has been a challenge. Uh, it was great talking to Dr. Shackelford about the community colleges. I visited a I visited with Guilford Technical Community College. I visited with Central Piedmont a couple of weeks ago. Um, they're doing great work. Our educational establishment is trying to hard to educate our peop the people, the workers we need. Um, but I don't see any breakthroughs coming there. And I don't see substantial deregulation around the, the corner either. And those are the kind of developments that would lead to a, a, a sudden uh, major surge in efficiency. But by the same token, it's hard to see why productivity growth would fall much any further. New innovations don't seem to be petering out. We visit factories, we visit uh, companies around our district, and it's amazing that, that uh, just across the economy, there's people figuring out how to do better with what they got, how to use resources more effectively. Um, I was down in Sampson County. It's east of here, right? Um, just a couple years ago, visiting a farmer, and was showing me uh, innovation in the way they, they uh, the way uh, cotton is gathered, picked, and processed. Uh, it's just amazing. Um, so I don't think um, innovations are, are, are petering out. And I, so I don't see where the stagnations are coming through on, from this. The most likelihood, the most likely outcome in my view, is we're going to get more of the same in productivity growth, about 1% uh, for the next several years. So that's productivity growth, output per worker. Uh, let's look at employment growth. Employment growth has slowed since the great moderation. From 83 to 2000, employment increased at a 1.8% annual rate. Um, and uh, over the last four years, employment growth has been about nine-tenths of a percent per year. So employment growth has fallen by half. Now, imminent acceleration doesn't seem likely. Population growth is only eight-tenths of a percent per year. And moreover, a lot of that is in the categories, if you divide it up by age groups, is in the category of older workers who are near your traditional retirement uh, benchmarks. The so-called prime working age population, age 25 to 54, barely growing at all. <clears throat> My longer run view is that the growth rate of employment is likely to equal the growth rate in population, about eight-tenths of a percent per year. In the short run, it's possible employment growth could move above that uh, as we continue to recover from our recession, but there are important impediments to, uh, to rapid employment growth, uh, and I've talked about a couple of them. So to summarize, I think in the short run, we're likely to see real GDP growth around 2%, uh, but in the longer run, um, I remain optimistic about our, our prospects. Before I wrap up, let me share some observations on inflation and monetary policy. First thing to say about inflation is that uh, it's important to recognize that inflation has been very well behaved over the last 20 years. Since 1993, the inflation rate has averaged 1.92%, to be precise. It's remarkably close to the FOMC's goal of 2%. The Federal Open Market Committee, the body Jim referred to, uh, that uh, I attend and, and work on, uh, we meet eight times a year in Washington. Um, it, it, we all 
gather views from around the system. Um, each of the presidents talks about what's going on in their district, what they're hearing from people like you around the country. Um, and uh, we go over staff briefings and figure out what monetary policy should be. A couple of years ago, we formally established that our goal was 2%. People had inferred that it was 2% from our behavior, and we sort of gotten close to essentially making that an informal goal, but we, we made it our official goal a couple of years ago, and that was a really good thing. So um, over 20 years, we've had inflation averaging 2%, and if you're sitting down with your retirement calculator and wondering what inflation rate to put in, put in 2%. Second thing to note about inflation is that we've seen fluctuations uh, over that time period, uh, but they've all proved to be transitory. We always get end up coming back to 2%. Um, I mentioned this. Uh, because many people have noticed uh, that over the last 12 months, inflation has only averaged around 1%, no, 0.9% to be exact. My sense is that inflation is going to move back towards 2% over the next year or two, in part because we have measures of what markets participants expect inflation to be over the next 5 and 10 years. And those are, are pretty steady. Those don't show that people expect a fall in inflation anytime soon. But this is not a certainty that inflation won't, won't continue to fall. We have to defend our goal from both sides. We have to act if inflation gets too high, and, uh, and we have to act if inflation gets too low. Um, so we have to be watchful, and I think the FOMC will uh, continue to watch inflation very closely. So that brings me to the topic of monetary policy. It's been particularly challenging of late. As you may recall, the Fed reduced its target for the federal funds rate to essentially zero at the end of 2008. Given the state of the economy, I, I supported that. I thought it was an appropriate response of monetary policy to a weak economy. But doing that brings us face-to-face -face with uh, what economists call the zero lower bound. This refers to the fact that it's simply not practical as a general matter to reduce interest rates below zero uh, because people can always take money out of the bank and stuff it in their mattress and earn zero. So it's hard to get them to bear a rate of return of less than zero on money. At times, though, we wish we could, uh, just in order to provide the stimulus the economy might need. Now, I should be clear that the Fed is not uh, totally paralyzed just because the interest rate's at zero. By purchasing assets, expanding our balance sheet, we can increase the supply of monetary assets to the economy. Our liabilities are those paper notes you carry around, Federal Reserve notes, plus money that we supply to the banking system called bank reserves, and we can increase the supply of that. Um, and in some circumstances, that can have a, a, a strong stimulative effect. The Fed has purchased significant quantities of assets since the end of 2008. The size of our balance sheet has gone from $2.2 to around $3.9 It was actually $1 trillion before the recession began. Um, so, and, and now we're buying assets at a pace of $85 billion a month. So the balance sheet is expanding uh, at a substantial, uh, substantial pace. The key issue, in my view, is the extent to which the benefits of further monetary stimulus are likely to outweigh the costs. Economic growth trends appear to be driven mainly by population growth and productivity growth. And in that case, monetary stimulus is only going to have a limited and transitory effects on real economic activity. But further stimulus does increase the size of our balance sheet, and it correspondingly increases some of the risks associated with 
what we call the exit process, the process of winding down our balance sheet and, and um, increasing interest rates when, when the time comes, when the economy is strong enough and we need to uh, withdraw stimulus. And that, this is why I have not been in favor of the current uh, asset purchase program. So to conclude, let me return to the theme I began with. Um, yes, 2% growth has been a disappointing relative to uh, our experience during the period of the great moderation. Um, and yes, growth may continue to be uh, at a rate that's slower in the past. But productivity is rising. Incomes are rising. Innovation is occurring. More broadly, our institutions of higher learning are worldwide leaders in research and education, we continue to attract exceptional students from all around the globe. Our markets remain flexible and resilient. This is still an excellent place globally to in innovate, to implement new innovations and new ideas. Uh, our public policy problems look daunting. We may f face very difficult challenges there, but they're certainly not, in principle, insoluble. So consequently, when I take a broad view, I am fundamentally optimistic about uh, the future of the United States. So I'll leave you with that thought. I thank you very much for your attention, and I'd be glad to hear from you. Uh, Jeff will answer any question. He may not answer it the way you want it, but uh, I talked to him beforehand, and he said, anything you want to ask. So please don't hesitate to ask questions. Who's going to be first? Well, I'll start out, or did I see a hand? Uh, Jeff, you have served on the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee with Janet Yelton, who is the nominee. Can you tell us what sure. your views are on sure. that? Sure. Um, Janet Yellen uh, is a colleague of mine. See, she's a, um, an academic economist. She um, taught at Berkeley University. In the early 1990s, she was appointed by Clinton to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, served there for several years, went back to Berkeley, um, and then was appointed to be president of the F San Francisco Federal Reserve. So when I became president of the Richmond Fed in 2004, I, I got to know her there, worked with her. Uh, we... Uh, do monetary policy, you're all familiar with that, but we also, uh, we do a lot of other stuff in the reserve banks. We um, provide services to the banking industry. Uh, we have a lot, we have substantial operations, about three and a half billion dollars, uh, moving money between banks. Our computers move four trillion dollars a day. Uh, we provide currency that you're familiar with. We supervise the banking industry. And the presidents worked together on that, and she was an outstanding colleague there. Um, then she, in 2010, she was appointed to the Board of Governors in Washington. She's been a governor since then, a vice chair. Uh, she's um, exceptionally smart, articulate, um, prepares meticulously. Uh, she's thoughtful. Uh, she listens uh, to different points of view. I think she's got all the ingredients to be an excellent uh, chairman. Um, and so I'm looking forward to working with her going forward. Yes, Good question. Um, so there's a lot of speculation. I mentioned that we were buying $85 billion a month in assets. And um, there's been speculation for several months now as to when we would begin reducing the pace at which uh, we would um, buy those. Uh, so personally, I would have tapered a while back uh, because of my views about the asset purchase program, that the costs seemed to outweigh the benefits. Uh, uh, 
as far as predicting the committee, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to speak for my colleagues. I will point out the minutes of the last Federal Open Market Committee were uh, released yesterday afternoon, and the minutes were count recorded. And I can point to that and cite that as saying that um, that um, many members thought that tapering could be begin in the next several months. So that would be something that encompasses the next meeting in December or a meeting at the very end of January that we have, and then the next scheduled meeting is in March. So um, sometime in that time frame seems like a reasonable time to begin shifting away from asset purchases. Yes, sir. Question. Um, uh, so, I, uh, I think we, you know, we're capable as an economy of growing at three and a half percent. It would take um, it would take a lot of things, a lot of ingredients, a lot of things would have to turn out right uh, for that to happen. Um, a lot of policy levers uh, would have to be set appropriately, and people would have to be confident that they're going to stay set. I can get into the details if you want. One of them is immigration reform. One of them is, um, you know, is just um, getting the long-term fiscal house in order at the federal level, so people know, you know, five years down the road what the tax rate on the income from a particular investment is going to be. So they have some confidence they can do the, just do the math to figure out whether it's worthwhile or not, uh, whether it's worth hiring people or not, knowing the cost of adding an employee to your staff. There's a lot of uncertainty around that now because it's affected by the Affordable Care Act and all. So those are the kind of things. I think just certainty, much more certainty would be required about what the federal government's doing uh, before we could get back to the kind of burst of growth um, at that level that we saw in the great moderation. Good question. Yes, sir. That's a good question. Um, so I'll give you um, two perspectives on it. One is the perspective of economists, um, who, you know, as a general matter, um, would 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 not favor moving towards taxing ca uh, income on assets, the income from assets or taxing assets. <clears throat> right. No, I, I think most economists would would lean away from, from schemes um, based on taxing assets and would point towards taxing income or even better, um, general set of results suggest that uh, we'd be better by taxing consumption, so what people spend in essence. Um, so it, in, in essence, provide some um, tilt, uh, so provide some benefits to um, saving, so reward saving. Over the long run, that that seems to do better for the kind of model economies where we can do these experiments. Uh, so. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really that's an exceptionally hard problem. 
Um, now, the, the FOMC, when it um, four times a year releases its forecast, we, we're all asked to provide forecasts. I told you about the blue chip survey. So they survey all the FOMC uh, meeting participants, and um, they put out a table that lists out our forecast for the next couple of years. And in the last one, I'm the, I'm the one at the bottom for growth. <laughs> because some of my colleagues also think growth is going to accelerate soon. Um, but there's also in there um, a dot picture, is what we call a dot picture, that, that has where FOMC members, what mem FOMC members think the, the federal funds rate, our, our policy interest rate, is going to be at the end of next year, the year after, the year after, and the year after that. And um, there's a range of views, and I think it's, it's a difficult analytical question to wrestle with. You want to raise them soon enough that you prevent, you know, inflation pressures, nip them in the bud. Um, and we did that very successfully in 1993. And it was, I told you about this 20-year period of low inflation. That seems to have done the trick where we raised, in, we raised rates before inflation rose, before those pressures got out of hand. Whereas in the past, you know, in the 70s and 60s, we sort of waited until inflation got a little too high and and then it was kind of Katie barred the door. So that preemptive move in early 93 seems to have done a lot to establish kind of the ground rules that lead, led people to have confidence that we would take measures to keep it um, under control. So yeah, you want to do it too soon enough to nip pressures in the bud, but you don't want to do it too soon. You don't want to stamp on the brakes too soon. So it's a, a delicate thing, and do you, do you look at the unemployment rate, so the, sort of the amount of slack, as people call it? Or do you look at the rate of growth? Do you wait for the rate of growth to turn up? And there's arguments on both sides on that. Yeah, our staff, uh, particularly in Washington and New York, and um, senior leadership, um, Chairman Bernanke, Vice Chairman Yellen, um, and President Dudley, who's president of New York Fed, are in regular contact with um, central banks from around the world. Uh, there are a number of consultative bodies that they're a part of, G20, different Basel committees and the like, where they meet regularly and get together and exchange views. Uh, when something comes up, particularly during the crisis in 2008, there were a lot of ad hoc phone calls uh, and ad hoc um, arrangements made. Um, so there's a lot of consultation. Um, it, it's widely accepted within that group that each central bank is um, duty-bound to conduct policy for the good of its nation. Um, it's a general, as a general matter, that's going to lead to the best for all countries, but people can differ on what's best for a given country. So occasionally there's um, an, a frank exchange of views, as the diplomats say. Um, and uh, it's, it's a, a process uh, that's, that's, that works pretty well. We follow economic conditions in other countries because they have, they have the potential to have a significant effect on us. Uh, this I, I talked to you about net exports, not likely to be a, a strong contributor to growth. Part of that's because of weakness in Europe. And, um, and, and the general sort of slowdown in, in the trajectory that China's on. Um, and uh, so we keep tabs on that because it has an effect on U.S. economic conditions.
Yeah. Um, the idea that we don't have an independent audit is hogwash. Uh, so um, Jim mentioned the structure of the, of the 12 reserve banks that are the operational arms of the Federal Reserve System. The Board of Governors audits us. Their job, their role is to oversee what we do, and so they send in teams of auditors all the time. We have an independent uh, public auditor, like it's Deloitte Touche, just like any you know any public company has an independent auditor, and they we have a financial statement we issue, and they're audited, and there's a there's an, a, an accountant's opinion there. The gen, the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, which audits government agencies, audits the Federal Reserve at any one time. There's a dozen or more audits in train. There's a small carve out to the provisional um, authorizing them to audit the Fed. The carve-out is for monetary policy decision-making process. Um, and here's what it's designed to prevent. So we conduct policy. Uh, our aims are inflation, employment, growth. Um, and um, our actions we take from meeting to meeting are hard calls. It's a difficult job. It's a challenging one. The science is you know, not where we'd, we'd like it to be. So there's always a reason, room for debate about any one meeting's uh, outcome. But the results, they come in over the course of three or four years where you know a, a given path or a given strategy worked out or not. So what this, what this carve-out prevents is somebody in Congress calling up the GAO and saying after a meeting, I don't like the fact that they raised interest rates. Audit that meeting. And they come in and they... They would, they would be entitled to go over our papers, go over the transcripts, go over all the briefing, and issue a report in, a, in you know 90 days on how we did at that meeting. We deserve to be accountable. We deserve to be accountable for the results. You've asked us to ensure inflation is low and stable. You've asked us to pursue maximum employment. Let's evaluate that. But second-guessing the, the instrument choice, um, our policy choice as we do that, it's impractical and it's a threat because the times in which we've gotten in trouble as a central bank have been times in which there's been excessive political pressure put on us to conduct policy in a way that would yield short-run benefits to some politi political actors at the cost of longer-run economic health. And, and I mentioned the great, I may have mentioned the great inflation in the 70s. That was the time in which that's what happened. The pressure Congress put on us and the administration in the 60s and late 60s and early 70s was directly resulted. And so I think this independence is a delicate thing and we need to preserve it. So the idea that we're not audited in a meaningful way is ridiculous. So you're asking what's driven the stock market going up? I'll give you, I'll give you the answer that I, I, I would flip answer I'd give my kids. What they got sick of was it's all supply and demand, uh, which is of course an evasion. Um, it's uh, it's difficult to say as an outsider. Um, certainly, um, you know certainly there've been uh, you know reasonable profit prospects. Uh, but rates of return on, on long-term securities, tr uh, treasuries, for example, is certainly another factor that's um, because they're so low is bolstering stock market values as well. Um, 
you know, it's it's one of those things. It's just hard to hard to hard to piece out. So I'm not going to be able to tell you. Is there a question over here? That's a really good question. <clears throat> um, uh, so uh, the first thing you'd name is um, uh, you know, risk would come in the form of um, a, a disruption uh, overseas, uh, a significant recession in Europe or or, um, or Asia um, could have an effect on our export demand and could could drag down our, our economy and could cause some a slowdown in growth. Um, I think, um, you know, I think what's going on in Washington uh, could play out um, in a healthy way over time, uh, could play out poorly over time, and that has the potential to just continue to, continuing to be a wet blanket on growth um, and could push growth rates down um, even more than they've been depressed so far. Um, and... Um, uh, there's always a potential uh, – economists for 40 years now worry about oil price shocks, energy price shocks, um, which, if they're large enough, have the potential to uh, disrupt growth for a time. I, let me um, just say I don't, I don't see significant risks. I don't see, I don't see um, downside risks being elevated at this time uh, relative to the recent past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's just an abundance of of skilled and unskilled people that want to come and live and make their life in the United States, and I, I, I think the consensus among economists is that that's good for all of us, um, you know, in the long run, that it's it 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 creates activity here rather than overseas. Um, it generates jobs, innovation, ideas here, and, and I'm talking about sort of all skill levels. You know, um, I, I think it's it's just an unalloyed good for growth, and, and uh, many economists have favored immigration, um, loosening immigration restrictions for a long time as a result. So one back here, and and then you know how we're doing on time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, we get that all the time. Um, with interest rates being as low as they are, a lot of uh, citizens are on, that are on fixed uh, incomes, retirement portfolios, for example, who are invested in CDs, um, as they roll over, uh, their income, the, the income uh, from uh, CD investment very low. We're very aware that um, that this policy has some adverse distributional effects, um, but it's um, it's pretty easy to demonstrate that, you know, on the whole, on the on net, it's it's a plus for for the economy. Um, you know, on the positive side, for those with retirement portfolios, it has driven up um, lower interest rates. Do tend to drive up equity values and drive up the value of of bond portfolios, um, and so mutual funds holding those are affected positively. But um, the FOMC is very well aware, my colleagues are very well aware of, of, um, of uh, kind of the pain it's, it's, it's causing to some people on fixed incomes. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.